exceptional customer service. I'm sure you've heard those words uttered during a training session for a retail or service industry job at some point in your life. Heck, those words might even be on your own value statement or team member handbook. Goodness knows I've got nothing against exceptional customer service. It's just that it's a little vague. And more than that, we tend to associate customer service with fixing problems. There will always be problems to fix for customers, but what about the rest of their experience with us? What if we use the relationship we want our customers to have with our business as the basis for designing their whole experience? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that takes you behind the scenes to explore how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds and supposed tos. Last week, we talked about how critically examining your relationship to yourself as a business owner can help you develop a healthier relationship with your business so that it can take care of you instead of you always taking care of it. This week, we're taking a closer look at our relationships with our customers. Sure, we could talk about delivering exceptional customer service, but the ideas that always pique my curiosity are the ones where I learn how a business owner is thinking really creatively about how they design a remarkable customer experience. Customer experience starts long before you ever make a pitch. It begins when a potential customer first learns about your business and brand. That first impression sets a tone that will likely carry over into their experience of buying from your business and using your product or service. Customer experience carries on through the buying cycle as a potential customer learns more about your business and how it helps people like them. They experience your business in a new way when they actually make a purchase and get onboarded into your world. Customer experience is, of course, baked into how they use your product or service, as well as how they're offboarded. But customer experience doesn't stop there. It continues on after they're done with their initial purchase. The ongoing nurturing they receive from you impacts their experience too. And then when you make a follow-up offer, that's also part of their customer experience. Being really intentional about how you design the customer experience from start to finish means you're being really intentional about the relationship you want to build with the people who are buying from you, and even with the people who never do. What I really love about remarkable customer experience design is that it can be so creative. There truly is no one-size-fits-all process. Our different values, types of customers, ways of serving, skills, strengths, differentiators, points of view, they each contribute to making our customer experience uniquely our own. During the course of this episode, we're going to look at four ways you can make your customer experience remarkable and help build a more intentional relationship with the people who buy from you. I'll share some things you can consider as you think about your own customer experience, and you'll hear examples from thoughtful business owners who made customer experience design a priority. We'll start with that initial discovery of your business. How do your people want to find out about your business? What do you want that experience to be like? Now, please note that these are not marketing questions. I'm not talking about how to reach more people or use social media in a more human way. I'm talking about how your potential customers actually want to learn about your business, even if they don't even know it yet. 
What are they looking for? How do they look for it? What kind of feeling are they after? And why do they want to feel that way? You can have incredible content marketing, an amazing social media strategy, and a huge Facebook ad budget. And if you're not meeting your customers where they're at and giving them an experience they really want to have, you're not going to get very far. I talk about this with Andrea Jones. Andrea runs a social media marketing agency and social media training school. So you'd think that Andrea finds her clients on social media, right? Nope. (laughs) Andrea told me that her potential clients do not want to be on social media. That's why they're hiring a social media agency in the first place. So she has to approach the experience of how people find out about what she offers in a way that's very different from how she designs that experience for her clients' businesses. My clients don't like social media. (laughs) That's why they hire it out because they don't really like it. Um, And so when it comes to wooing my clients, and I like that you use that word, uh, wooing, because it is a little bit of a, of a dance and a, a, a dating. I like to use that relationship a lot. Um, but when it comes to finding those people, it, it takes a little bit of a different approach than what I use with my own clients. Oftentimes, I'm finding my clients inside of paid communities. And I think that it's just starting conversations. So a lot of it is happening beneath the surface, as you said, in messages, in paid communities, and even in on sites like um, Upwork, for instance, where, where people are actually putting their foot out there, putting their their business out there and saying, hey, I need help. Um, and so a lot of times I'm finding my clients in those aspects and not so much on social media. Um, social media is a really great way for me to showcase my authority. I do make a lot of more like lateral connections. So if I'm looking for web designers to connect with or copywriters, we're all in the same space. So collaborating with those people, is a, uh, social media is a really great place for that. Um, but as far as my clients, they're usually not on social media. So I'm finding them other places. Got it. I'm sure that has listeners kind of thinking like, okay, if Andrea is offering social media services to one kind of company or to her clients and she's doing something else, like, is that normal? Is that okay? Which should I be doing? Can you break down for us why both approaches do work and why they do work well and sort of how you parse or how you have parsed the fact that your approach works well for you, but your agency's approach works well for your clients. I think the the reason that I can work so well with my clients is because I'm practicing what I preach, essentially. So I am building an audience on social media. Um, in fact, an example would be I talked to a potential client recently who's looking to start a Facebook group, and they're interviewing several different people. Um, but they really want to do this Facebook group, so they're looking for someone who's had that experience. So not only have I done it for my clients, I have my own Facebook group, so I can bring insights into that client's um, experience just from my own experience and path and journey on building a Facebook group. Uh, But the reason that I think that it works so well with my clients, you know, that strategy is because we're going where their audience is. And so I think it's important to um, keep that in mind. And sometimes I talk myself out of a job when I say, you know, hey, maybe social media isn't the thing for you. If you know, if there are certain elements of what you're selling or certain aspects of your audience characteristics that indicates that they wouldn't be on social media. So that's how it works with my own business. My audience 
typically isn't on social media, unless we're talking about things like some of my courses and that sort of thing, which is just a smaller part of what I do. Most of my time is spent with my clients, my private clients, and more often than not, they're not on social media. Andrea gives such a clear example of how a potential customer's preferences and habits inform the experience they want to have. I think it's tempting to believe that if you only yell louder and more strategically, you'll reach your customers wherever you show up. And sure, more strategic, louder yelling produces some results. But are those the results you really want? Is that the kind of relationship you want to build with your customers? Andrea mentioned dating as a metaphor for wooing your customers, and it's a good one. And it can actually help direct our thinking about how we want a relationship with our customers to start. Think about online dating. Where would you start a profile if you were looking to find someone? Maybe you'd gravitate to eHarmony because you're looking for that blend of pop psychology and conservative values that that platform seems to build on. Maybe you'd go for Bumble because you like the idea of women being in charge. Maybe, like I did, you'd hit up OkCupid because it's a bit counterculture and attracts the kind of people you're looking for. Or maybe your style is more Christian Mingle, Farmers Only, or Bristler, a dating site exclusively for people with beards and the people who want to love people with beards, which does appear to be a real thing. The people on each of those sites are looking for something a little different, and they expect the experience they have there to match. Think of the potential dater as the potential customer. They choose one site over another because of the experience they're looking for. Taking it a step further, the expectations that are tied to that site carry over on a first date too. I imagine that people who go on dates from Tinder have a different experience than people who go on dates from eHarmony. Farmers-only first dates probably have a different flavor than OkCupid first dates. Part of the reason you choose a dating site is to have the experience you want to have from initial message to first date to moving in. So think about your potential customers again. Where do they do their research? Where do they hang out online? What kind of media do they consume? And why do they make those choices? What's the experience that is important for them? If you can tailor the way you design your initial engagement to match the experience your potential customers are looking for, you're much more likely to earn a second date. Why don't we keep rolling with this metaphor for a bit? Part of going on first dates, second dates, and probably even a few more after that is dealing with the anxiety and discomfort of dating. Sean often reminds me how flushed I was on our first date because I was so freaking nervous. There's a good chance your potential customers, well, they're nervous too. They might not have a lot of confidence in their ability to find a solution. They might have been burned in the past. They might worry about how much making a change is going to cost. They might even be anxious that there's no answer to their question at all. Part of customer experience design and nurturing your relationship to your customers is putting them at ease. It's not always possible to eliminate all of the worry, but it's always possible to make it a bit better if we design the experience well. What do your potential customers worry about when it comes to making a purchase? What makes them feel uncomfortable? Are you bumping up against any cultural or social conditioning that might make them wary of moving forward with you? 
I asked Shaquette Timmons, a financial behaviorist and the host of More Than Money, about how she's been handling this in the way she designs experiences for her clients, including the aptly named Comfort Circle Dinners. I was having a conversation with a coaching client, and she got herself in a little bit of a pickle. And it wasn't something that I could help her with directly, but, you know, I've been in the industry a really long time. I know a lot of folks. I was able to connect her with someone who could help her. And after that connection was made and everything was taken care of, when we reconnected, she was like, oh, my God, I am so glad I have you because I don't know what I would have done. And she said I would have gone to the Yellow Pages. Now, the thing that's really interesting about that is she's a general counsel of a publicly traded company. So the thought that she would consider going to the yellow pages was just like, but why? And she said to me, I can talk to my friends about sex. I cannot talk to them about money. Now that clearly was not the first time that I had heard that, but it just landed with me in a much different way than any of the other previous times. And I started thinking, well, why is that? In large part, because there isn't an environment where people feel safe and comfortable and feel they, they, that they can be vulnerable and that someone's not going to look at her and say, well, she's a GC. Like, how, why, how, why, how, could, how could she not figure this out? And, you know, like not have those kind of trappings actually trap you, if you will. Um, so I started thinking, well, what could I do and what could I do that would not cost me a lot of money? And so then I was like, a dinner. And I was like, well, I'm not going to have all these people in my house <laughs> since I live in a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> I have been to your house, and that would not work. <laughs> it would not work. <laughs> oh, my God. So then I started thinking, all right, this will be really cool. I think I'm going to do this dinner. And it literally was one of those things where – it was the weekend. It was a Saturday. I sat down and I thought about, you know, what is it that I really wanted it to be? And again, emphasizing creating a safe space for people to have conversations around money, business and life where they can be vulnerable and where they can also not only use that space to share, but to learn um, and to walk away with something really practical. Because while my mission is certainly all about helping to change the kinds of conversations that we're having around money, you have to practice what you are doing as well. Like you can't just be all talk. You've got to put some action behind that. Um, and so I just wanted it to be one of those things where people that knew each other, that didn't know each other would come together. So I sat down on that weekend and I was just like, well, what does this look like? And I flushed it out. And then two weeks later, I had the first dinner and we had six people at the dinner. And it was always my intent to uh, do a couple of things, have a different theme every month to just kind of reflect the myriad ways in which money impacts our lives and our businesses. And then a second to always keep the dinners small. So we've had as few as four guests and as many as 12 um, at any dinner. And I don't think it will be more than 12, um, at least for dinner, because I always want it to keep it intimate. Jaquette's comfort circle dinners are a pretty literal example of designing an experience to make your customers or potential customers more comfortable. But this idea can extend to all different areas of your customer experience design. Once you've figured out what's making your customers worried, anxious, or on edge, you can consider how they'd like to feel instead and what kind of experience would help create that feeling. Now, that can look 
all sorts of different ways. It could be how you post on Instagram and the type of content you share there. It could be the experience of doing an initial consultation with you. It could be producing a podcast so that your potential customers get to have a more intimate experience of you and how your business can help them. It might be the copy on your website. These are all different ways you can design a better experience for your potential customers before they even click the buy button. All right, we've covered designing the customer experience before your potential customer even knows your business exists. We've talked about designing an experience that eases their worries. Now, let's talk about designing a sales experience that matches the experience you want people to have when they're actually working with you or using your product. If your product or program is lighthearted and quirky, a super impersonal, urgency-laced sales experience is just not going to work, and it's going to ruin your relationship with potential customers. On the flip side, if your potential customers know you as rigorous and intentional, a lighthearted and quirky sales experience just isn't going to cut it. Customer relationships really solidify during a sales process, so it's a key part of the customer design experience you really want to get right. I talked with attorney Autumn Whit Boyd about going down the wrong path with the sales experience at her law firm, as well as how she reversed course and why she rebuilt the sales experience the way she did. I was in a mastermind with a great coach who was encouraging me to automate a lot of things. So we worked on automating the sales process. And I think we took it about five steps too far (laughs) into automation. We automated everything. We use a CRM, a customer relationship management tool that's just for lawyers. So don't ask me what it is because it's not great and I wouldn't recommend it. But it it works with our law practice uh, management software. So we use that and it has kind of like automated follow-ups and you can have a bunch of canned responses in there and um, you can just kind of like set it and it just goes. And I had the person on my team who now helps me with marketing. Her name is Sarah Kate. Um, She has her own business. She's an entrepreneur. She's great at sales. So I kind of handed it off to her to run the automations. And after about six months, our inquiries or the the inquiries that were making it to me had really dropped. Like our number of sales calls booked had just fallen off a cliff. And I frankly had not been monitoring it that carefully. I knew Sarah Kate was competent. I had, you know, put it in her lap. Um, And so that was definitely on me for not monitoring it more carefully. But when I took a look at this and I knew our numbers were down. I went and looked at the emails that were going out and they were incredibly impersonal. Mm. So we had these canned responses for different types of inquiries. Like if you want a copyright, you get this one. If you want a contract, you get this one. But what we had taken out was actually responding to people's questions. You know, people don't usually just email us and say, I need a contract. They say, what do you think about this? Or can I do X, Y, Z? And so we had just automated it to a point where it was very cold And even though the canned responses were good, it it was like you looked at the inquiry and you looked at the canned response and it just was a total mismatch. And so I think people were totally turned off by that, which I would be too. So that that is what was not working (laughs) to answer that question. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. Because I think a lot of people, whether they're doing that sort of more like high touch sales, which I think is where we're going, or even doing like digital product sales, the trend has been toward automation and automation is not always the solution. And I think that people find themselves in that position of like, oh crap, (laughs) this is not working. This doesn't feel good. So actually, before we get into sort of how things started to shift and what kind of changes you made, I'd love to get inside your head a little bit, maybe even inside your heart a little bit too, because like I was just having a conversation uh, just yesterday with a business owner. They were like, I have a confession to make. I did this thing. 
I don't like it. And I've been doing it for a long time now. And I just got to get that off my chest. And like, can we talk about how to change this? So anyhow, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear like, what was going on in your head while you're reading these emails? And you're like, Oh, this is just this isn't right. And then and also, how did it make you feel? Yeah. Oh, I felt terrible. I had like a pit in my stomach when I was reading through them. And I felt and by the way, these emails are all quote unquote signed from me. So, you know, to take it one step further. Yeah, I just felt like, oh, you know, the first it's their first interaction with our firm. And just to give you we are not a high volume firm. We are very high touch. We take really a lot of pride in our um, customer process and we just love on our clients and we like to be really, um, you know, answer all their questions and just make sure that they feel really good about working with us. And then this was the first interaction with us. I was like, of course, no one was wanting to have a call with me because I wasn't, I wasn't acting in the way that the, the whole rest of our client process is. It was just a total mismatch. So yeah, I felt horrible. Yeah. I appreciate the vulnerability in admitting that because like I said, I mean, I just think it's where so many other people are or have been. So what was the first thing that you changed when you decided, okay, some, something's got to give here. Something's got to, something's got to happen. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you part, the reason we went to automation, the problem we were trying to solve was that I was spending too much time on sales and Mm -hmm. I felt like I needed to be spending time on other things. But I looked at my schedule and we had in the interim fixed a lot of our other internal processes. Ah. So now that wasn't a problem anymore. I had more time because I wasn't spending time on other things that had been, you know, uh, you know, not, not well, um, not really automated, but now we have checklists and we have kind of a lot, a lot of follow-up processes and all those things. So that was all now off my plate. I sat down with Brooke, the business manager I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the team and who had more bandwidth and we just kind of shifted things around and it turned out Brooke had more bandwidth. Now remember, Brooke is not uh, great at sales. So now we kind of tag team. Every inquiry that comes in, she is very good at follow-up, very good at like process and checking things off a list. I am not great at that. So what she does is she does a kind of first review now of every inquiry we get, which is usually by email. Even if they send us like the contact form from our website, it comes by email. Or if it's a referral, it comes by email. Um, so she kind of gives it a first look and then she bugs me about it to get my eyes on it. Um, because I can usually in two minutes say, send this or do that. And instead of me spending an hour crafting the perfect response, she can spend 10 minutes crafting a response because she's not invested the way I am. She's still invested and wants to take care of people. But um, I don't know. I just feel like I spend way too much time on it. So now I spend a little, a little time, but I give her guidance either, oh, I, I recognize this person's name. So let's be sure to like make it really friendly or, um, you know, thank the referral source or whatever. Or, you know, if they ask a question, here's a quick answer to that. Or I can't really answer that in an email. We need to jump on a call. I give her guidance so that now we're giving a very customized, it may still kind of be based on a canned response, but it's very mm-hmm. customized. And then sometimes she'll actually, she'll draft something and I'll review it if it's a more complicated thing or if it's, you know, a client we're really excited about and we want to make sure we kind of give them white glove treatment. So it's it's kind of evolved into this. We still use some automations. We still use the, the follow-up reminders and things in our CRM, but now it's just got a much more of a personalized touch. When you were thinking through how you were going to change up your sales process, I'd love to hear about the values or the experience that you really wanted to prioritize for the people that were getting in touch with you and how you baked those values or that experience into the process that ultimately you built. 
We really value taking care of people and being really responsive and helpful. We value, you know, really high quality legal work. We are not just, you know, quick. We're not a trademark mill. We're we're mm-hmm. pretty hands-on. And so I wanted to make sure that they got a sense of that right away because we're also not inexpensive. Um, and so if you're hiring us, you're kind of paying a premium. There's a lot of places you could get an LLC set up or a trademark filed that are cheaper than us. So the reason people hire us is because our process is really smooth and we, you know, answer every question they have. We don't nickel and dime them for extra help. And so I just, those were the values that I wanted to make sure were coming through. Cause why would you hire us if, if you're not getting a sense of that? You'd go to, you know, LegalZoom if, if you're going to get a canned response anyway. Um, so yeah, the, those were all really important. Like we, we send a welcome packet. We have a, uh, we send gifts to our client. Like we just, we have this whole customer experience after they hire us. And I wanted to make sure that the beginning kind of fit with that. All right, we've covered designing the initial customer experience with Andrea, designing a more comfortable experience with Jaquette, and now designing a sales experience that matches your client experience with Autumn. We'll close things out by looking at how to design the experience your customers have after they buy. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. People are craving connection to others who share their values, interests, and goals now more than ever. And the places they used to go to pursue those kinds of relationships have only gotten more divisive, more commercialized, and less likely to actually help you find the kinds of people you're looking for. Big social media has made it harder to nurture existing relationships and start new ones. So what's the alternative? The alternative is when people like you take the lead and gather together a bunch of people with shared values, shared interests, and shared goals. Your customers would love to get to know each other better. They'd love to work together to solve shared challenges and pursue new opportunities. And you, well, you can bring them together. Mighty Networks makes it easy. You can create a customized private social network just for your people. Plus, you can offer courses, events, and small groups all on the same platform. The What Works Network runs on Mighty Networks, and so does our Yellow House Media Group, the Standout Podcast Club. We chose Mighty Networks because it gives us a way to bring people together without the distraction of social media. Get started with your own Mighty Network today. Start your free trial by going to MightyNetworks.com. What Works is also brought to you by the Standout Podcast Club. Are you a podcaster or aspiring podcaster who wants to create a standout show that helps to grow your business? We'd love to support you inside Standout Podcast Club. The Standout Podcast Club is your hub for the training, coaching, and networking you need to produce a podcast that grows your small business. Inside, you'll find a complete blueprint for producing a podcast that gets noticed, attracts an audience, and helps you grow your business. Standout Podcast Club is more than an online course. It's a dynamic, community-powered coaching hub that helps us help you on every aspect of how you produce your show. If you run into a question, ask. If you're looking for feedback on an idea, tell the club. If you want to talk trends, strategy, or planning for the future, start the conversation. We want to help you use your voice and grow your business, and so do the other podcasters inside the club. We also offer a roundtable discussion and Q&A call each month so that you can meet up with other podcasters, get your questions answered in real time, and learn new of-the-moment ideas for your show. Find out more by going to Standout Podcast 
standoutpodcast.club. That's standoutpodcast.club. Now it's finally time to take a closer look at how to design the experience your customer has using your product or service. After your potential customers become your actual customers, you have a lot more opportunity to design the experience they have. Unfortunately, this is often when we get less creative as experienced designers. We want to get it right, so we follow pre-existing frameworks or best practices instead of really taking into account how our particular set of customers wants to move through the experience. Worse, there's a lot of advice out there encouraging you to design your customer experience so that it benefits you instead of the customer. Now, these things aren't mutually exclusive. You can have strong boundaries, work in ways that are satisfying to you, and protect your time without steamrolling your customers and their experience. There might be some trade-offs. There are always trade-offs. But it'll be worth it to design an exceptional experience that benefits both you and the customer. That was the gist of my conversation with Sarah Von Bargen, creator of Bank Boost and Make It Stick Habit School. Sarah had originally developed these programs as simple ebooks. She wanted an accessible product to sell that had hands off delivery. But she got to wondering is that really the best way for people to experience these ideas? Is this the experience that's going to get them the best results? So she ran an experiment. She'd turn Bank Boost into a live program and see if people got better results. Would they be more likely to follow through? Would students help each other out as they experienced the program together? The answers to these questions were definitely not a given. Not every kind of customer or every kind of business or every kind of problem is going to do better in a live setting versus a go-at-your-own-pace setting. Sarah ran the live program and then, like a good customer experience designer, asked for feedback from her students. I asked her how the feedback from the live program differed from the feedback from the ebook. Were the ebook customers as equally effusive and successful as the live program participants? They were very sweet about it. You know, they were like, oh, this yeah. is really helpful. But, you know, I was getting like two, three paragraph answers when I asked the live people. And I think that's also just because of the relationship that we've developed. Like, you know, I'm doing live Q and A's, they can see my face, they ask me questions in real time. And then I say to them like, oh, Kimberly, I totally understand where you're coming from. And like, I've had the same problem. And so when you have that sort of relationship with somebody, they're going to be so much more effusive and so much more open about what they've overcome. And I think also because I've worked really hard to um, develop an incredibly supportive and non-judgmental community. And I even have in our private Facebook group, um, I have like a welcome video. And like the number one rule is like, this is a judgment-free space. And like, if somebody tells you that they have $20,000 worth of credit card debt, you don't need to be mean about it. And so I think yeah. because I've worked really hard to create that environment, they also feel like they can be honest with me about their doubts, what they overcame, what they were struggling with, that kind of stuff. I want to kind of just put a pause there and say, like, some of the things we're talking about may seem obvious, like, of course, you got better results and got more effusive feedback from a live version versus an evergreen version. But at the same time, I think this conversation is really necessary because there are so many people out there advising digital product creators to work toward that set it and forget it business model. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're not thinking 
critically enough about what that means for the people who are buying from us. So that leads me into the next question, which is, you know, you've got a product suite of evergreen, set it and forget it Mm -hmm. kinds of products. Why go the opposite direction and start trying to run things live? What was your thought process there? Part of what I teach about is about the intersection of um, money and happiness and making for sure that your values aligned with your spending and that the things you're buying really do make you happy and really do add to your life. So that is like core of who I am, core of what I teach. And if I can look at the dashboard and see that, you know, 70% of people who buy my course aren't completing it, to me, I have just encourage them to purchase something that's not adding to their lives. Like I know it would add to their lives if they took it and if they understood it, but clearly it's not working. So I think for me, part of it is just like a really values-based thing. Like it doesn't feel good to me to take hundreds of dollars from someone and then they don't use the thing that I sold them. I believe in the work that I do. I believe in my course. And I know that if they did the course, it would be life-changing. But if I can make a few tweaks on my end and help them get to the place that they want to go, why wouldn't I? And and also, I think the thing is, the way I launch is pretty low key. And my involvement in these live courses is honestly incredibly effective. But it's not like I'm spending 10 hours a week in my Facebook group for these courses. I'm spending like 10, 20 minutes a day max. I have an assistant who's in there who also answers questions. And I do between like three and four one hour live Q&As. So, I mean, it's kind of no skin off my back if I'm running these courses live, but it has a much bigger impact on my students. And also from a business perspective, if you help someone get amazing results, they're going to be a million times more likely to buy your other products and tell their friends about you. Like I have tons of people who are signing up for this course who say like, my sister-in-law told me about this. My best friend told me about this. My cousin told me about this. And I think they're getting those results because I did it live and my students got great results. Like nobody's going to recommend some ebook they downloaded and didn't read. (laughs) Sarah was really clear that offering the program live was the best experience for most of her students and it was the best experience for helping them get exceptional results. She was also really clear that she didn't want to be an on-demand money coach while the program was running live. So Sarah designed the customer experience to satisfy both of those needs. I think that's the way we need to approach customer experience design more often, by balancing our needs and preferences with our customers' needs and preferences. What combination gives us the best outcomes for ourselves and for our customers. Hopefully, you're feeling inspired to take on nurturing your relationship with your customers beyond customer service or marketing. So I want to give you four ideas for moving forward to match the four parts of customer experience design we talked about today. First, look at the very first experience someone is likely to have with your business. How are you setting the tone for the relationship a potential customer will have with your business? How do you want a potential customer to feel when they find your business? How will they recognize how you approach things differently than they're used to? Then look at how your potential customer's relationship to your business starts to go deeper. How are you making them feel at ease or confident in their ability to do what they want to do? How do your values influence the experience your potential customer has with your brand at this point? 
Next, tackle the sales process. Are you trying to follow someone else's instructions here? Or are you using the experience your customers want to have while buying to guide your process? How can your sales process accurately reflect the experience they'll have once they buy? And then finally, take a look at the experience your customer has using your product or service. Is the experience designed for you or for them? How can you make the experience work better for both of you? Now, if you're a WhatWorks Network member, you're going to find a brand new customer experience design template inside the Stronger Business Playbook that will walk you through each of these steps and a few more. If you're not a member, be sure to get on the list for when we open the doors to new members this month. You'll get access to more than 20 business design templates in the Stronger Business Playbook, as well as our monthly deep dives, our global community of experienced small business owners, and our weekly support events. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash network to put yourself on the list. Next week, we're examining the relationships we build with our teams. Even if you're not working with other people, it's going to be a good listen, and it might just get you thinking about hiring. And if you're already on the team building train, well, you're going to find some ideas to shift your thinking and nurture your relationship with your team members. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt, And our production assistants are Kristen Runvik and Lou Blazer. You'll find links to my original interviews with the folks we featured this week, as well as links to their sites in the show notes. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga people in what is now known as Lidditz, Pennsylvania. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation in what is now known as the Flathead Valley of Northwest Montana.